fun being an African preacher as often, isn't it? In fact, there's one nice thing about being in Africa. The party in Africa is a tree. <laughs> so in the open uh, tree, party, tree, restroom, the tree. Bathroom. Bathroom. So you're in the open service anyway, there's no wall. So if you need to go to the restroom, just step behind the tree. So you can still hear. Did you have any chapter six? Poor Miss Dot. Yeah, that happened to me once. I'm going to share a story with you quickly. I went behind a tree. I had a serious diarrhea problem. <laughs> and I went behind a tree and there was a lion looking at me like, Oh, no! <laughs> Talk about needing to run rapidly. <laughs> Anyone trying to run at the end and hold your tummy at the same time? It's awful. Don't drink the water in Africa. It causes diarrhea. Amen. Let's go to the Word and let's have fun, God say. Amen. You know, people will probably crucify me for saying the things I say because um, this is the Holy House. But guess what? God, God made us like this. We need to be real with God. Amen. He understands some things about diarrhea. <laughs> Amen. He understands some things. Who do you think gave us these stomachs? Why do you think we have diarrhea? To prevent that germ getting stuck in your system and causing damage. Amen. So we go and undo what God's done by taking emodium sometimes. I, I can never get poisoned. I mean, I said to my wife when I first got married, but she slapped me soon after that. But she's not yet to slap me, so I can say this. If I eat something that's slightly wrong, within two hours I've got diarrhea. You can't poison me. My stomach kicks it out just like that. It's gone. That's God's way of creating a system that prevents the poison from sticking around. Okay, I'll get off diarrhea now. <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. Yero Israel, <laughs> the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk to them, talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your head, and there shall be a frontlet between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. In other words, there is one commandment that God gave the Jews, and then there is one commandment that Jesus gives us later stage, and if we get that right, the Ten Commandments are not even important because they'll all be obeyed anyway. And God even goes so far as to spell it out to you to explain to you in simple English, King James English, whatever English you want, exactly how you are to obey the one commandment. So you can't get it wrong. Now look what he says. These words that are commanded you today, verse 6, shall be in your heart. Now what are the words? The words are in verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, that's your spirit, with all your soul, that's your mind, your will, and your emotions. Now ladies, you can identify with the same emotions because your emotions change up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down, like a yo-yo. Or a roller coaster. Let's be real. 
gentlemen, your mind are like compartmentalized. So your anger is in one corner, and your emotions in another corner, and everything else is in another corner. So you can get mad, and two minutes later you carry on like nothing's happened. Not so the woman. Man, she was stuck with you for three months. Women will fight with you for three months, and you don't understand. It's because they'll think differently to us. So God included men and women said, with your soul, and your soul is your mind, for men, because men are logical, your will, and if you're a teenager, and you've got teenagers as kids or grandkids, you know the teenager's will is incredibly strong. They know everything, so hire them while they still know everything. When they get 21, they realize they know nothing, but before that, just hire them, employ them. Amen. And your emotions. Because your emotions will change. How many of you have woken up one morning, said nothing, and you looks at you and starts crying? And you're like, what did I do? I just grab a bed. What did I do? <laughs> Amen. So, ought to be part of man, we're supposed to love God with. And then he goes on to say, verse 7, so teach them to your children. And you need to talk about them when you sit in your house. You need to teach your children this. You're not supposed to put your children in front of the, 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 the new babysitter called television set. And it's a TV babysitter your children. You're supposed to teach this to your children. And you are supposed to talk about this to your children, as opposed to your golfing score, or your golfing handicap, your football score, um, the fact that UK have lost once again. And there was absolute silence. You guys don't support UK at all. You as well? Anyone support you as well? No one supports you as well? I don't support you as well. Ah, <laughs> oh, praise God, we got something. So you're supposed to teach that to your children and talk about it. And then it says, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. So the last thing you do before you go to bed is remind yourself that you're supposed to love God. The first thing you do when you get up in the morning is remind yourself that you love God. Now, woman, try and go for six months without telling your husband to love them. That won't happen. Because what happens then you know your wife doesn't love you anymore. If she can go for six months without telling you, you're in trouble. Then you're very comfortable and quickly. I think mean, a woman has to tell you this one today, she loves you. But for a woman to stand up in the morning and say, I love you, God, is natural, it's normal, it's easy. For a man, it's more difficult. Because once again, we compartmentalize everything, so we come to church, and that's when we tell God we love Him, and the rest of the week, what He just knows. We do the same thing with our wives. Well, she must know I love her, because I gave her a ring, glory to God. I bought her a house, I bought her a car, what more must I buy her? She must know I love her. What else is similar to I love her? Because women need to be told that all the time. Men think, well, she's got my ring on, she needs to know it by now. I've been married for 65 years, she needs to know it by now, I love her. I mean, do I have to this again? Yes. Again. And again. And again. Surely God knows I love him. I told him in 1966 that I love him. That's telling him again, he knows everything, surely. Yes, he's got again. Because every time you tell him, you condition your mind. You change your mind. You change your mind into thinking. Well, if I did this, what's God going to say? If I thought this, what's God going to say? What is God going to say? So by us telling God all the time we love Him, we're reminding ourselves, not God, we're reminding ourselves 
that we are servants of God. Do you know why we have so many heathen Christians out there? Because they come into church and tell God to love him and that's the last day we mention it. Then they go outside, they get drunk, beat up the wife, kick the dog, drown the cat, which is not always a bad thing. Drowning cats is not a bad thing. <laughs> I don't like that. Drown the cat. <laughs> but we have so many heathen Christians out there because they do not remind themselves every day they love God. So every Sunday they say, born again with a dress suit, best tie, and a little PhD haircut, Pentecostal Hindu, look all smart, all fancy, and leave here and start a bucket of to KFC and fight with somebody. Do you want to really make someone mad? Back here, pop into place in the church. Pop <laughs> behind them. Pop behind them. But they can't get out fast enough. They forget how much they love God and they remember how mad you made them. So what are we supposed to do with this? We're supposed to keep it. Now that goes on to say, verse 8, so bind them as a sign on your hand. The dudes wear these little winters. Or black strap around their forearm with the commandment here on their forearm so they can see it. And they have it tied around their head with a black box here and it's tied around their head with a little yamuka, a little, little cat there and with this thing on their forehead. And in their doorpost, at the doorpost they have a little pillar with a box, a mezuzah. And in that mezuzah is a scripture. And when they walk into the house, they touch the scripture and they kiss their fingers and they touch the scripture. That's to say that they're leaving everything from the world outside and not bringing it into the peace of their home. And the only thing inside their home will be the love of God. Generally, Jews have the lowest divorce rate. Have, excuse me. They have the lowest heart attack rate. They have the lowest stress-related illnesses. Jews generally have less stress, are more wealthy. I've never yet met a poor Jew. Most of the Jews I've met have been rich. They, they get married, they stay married forever. They have less stress. They don't have as many heart attacks as us Gentiles. And life seems to be a lot easier for the Jews, bar Hitler, Stalin, and one or two other minor problems. But they generally come out looking very good. Everybody might hate them, but there are only people I know who can go to a concentration camp and have peace. Now, I'm not speaking hypothetically. I've met a lady who was in a concentration camp. She even had a tattoo here. This lady had so much peace, you can't believe it. She lectures at the Baptist Theological College. She speaks seven languages. She's about 96 in the shade. And she's totally peace with the world. Outlived all her friends, outlived her family. She's at peace. You can't bother her. Nothing can bother her. I mean, she's been through a lot. But she says to me, you know what took me through that concentration camp? Was my love for God. They could do anything they want in my body, but they couldn't touch my love for God. They could never touch her love for God. How many 96-year-old ladies do you know that still lecture at theological seminary, speak seven languages fluently, and never yet mix up their words? Man, I speak three languages and I mix them up. Hillbilly, English, and redneck. <laughs> now, You shall write them on the doorpost and the answer on your gates. This is the prayer shawl. And you know that the prayer shawl has got five knots in it. 
of the five books of Moses. And between those notches, one, two, three, four, is four little spaces. And each space is for the name of Yahweh. Y-H-W-H. They don't have vowels. And when they're walking and talking and praying, they wrap the wrist around their fingers like that. So they're reminded of the five books of Moses and of Yahweh. That's their prayer shawl. And that's why we have it up here. Because this is known as the Tzitzi, these two. And the Tzitzi is to remind us of God. The name of God. It's written even in their material. Everything about the Jew is his religion, his God. His life revolves around God, not God around his life. So if this was temple, yeah, this was the shul, this pulpit. Everything revolves, the whole community revolves around the temple. You don't get married without consulting the rabbi. Doesn't matter how old you are, you are how young, you don't get into a business without consulting the rabbi. You don't give birth without having the rabbi present. If Becca was here, she was in labor for a whole bunch of days, and then they phoned me and said, please come and pray. And when I prayed, they was that I went home. Baby was born. I knew I could go home. Because I know when I pray, God answers my prayers. Baby was born almost quickly. I mean, by the time I got home, baby was born. You see, it's a Jewish tradition that the rabbi is there to pray peace over the family. Then he goes home and he renounces peace. The whole life revolves around Torah, around temple, because that's God. That's where God's at. And if we can get our lives to revolve around God, everything else becomes a whole lot easier. Everything becomes a whole lot easier. Well, a lot of people say, well, that's Old Testament. Okay, let's go to the book of Matthew, chapter 22. Let's see what Jesus had to say about this. Matthew, chapter 22, verse 37. Well, we we'll start at verse 34. And we come across two men, two groups of men. The far out you sees and the sad you sees. The far out you sees are the, are the theologians who are educated men, doctorate degrees from theological... Now, someone listen to me here. Theological seminary. Theo is God logical. Ain't logical. There's nothing logical about God. So how can you go to a place that studies the logical processes of God if it's not logical? Logic is man's definition, man's ability, man's lack of understanding. Logic is man's little mind trying to explain how Moses parted the Red Sea. Logic is man trying to explain how Mary conceived. Logic is man trying to explain how Jesus rose on the third day. Logic is man trying to explain how a lady walks into the church with cancer, I shake her hand, God heals her, she walks out without cancer. Logic is man trying to explain how a lady sits right here with Sue sitting, with three days left to live, with lung cancer, the doctors say, well, go make peace with God because you're going to die. I pray for her, 
she goes home, she lives a whole lot longer than three more days. Totally healed, new lungs. Now logic is man's lack of understanding trying to explain how this poor lady, and she was poor at that stage, how could she get restored of lung cancer? Because one African prays for her. It can't happen. You cannot explain it. You cannot explain the Spirit of God in terms of logic. You cannot explain how God can use an ass to talk to people. You cannot explain how God can take a dumb African out of Africa and put him in a small town like Carrollton and he enjoys himself. <laughs> Florida. Yeah, amen. Now, Florida I can understand. California I can... Not Carrollton. I said, Lord, California, Carrollton. California, Carrollton. Something's wrong here, Lord. But I'm enjoying myself in Carrollton. There's nothing logic in what God does. So theo and logical together is an oxymoron. It's putting two contradictory words in one sentence. It does not make sense. It's illogical how I managed to pay off my motor vehicle in less than 12 months on my salary, pay two payments on a house. It's illogical. It does not make sense. That's God. But with God, nothing is impossible. Luke chapter 1 verse 8. Nothing is impossible with God. And once you get your logic out of the, out of the way, you think, well, glory to God, something's happening here. How is this happening? Anyway, Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they were the lawyers. Oh, praise God, someone silenced the lawyers. Amen. Whoever invented lawyers, shoot him. Then one of them, a lawyer, oh there we go, a lawyer, had to be a lawyer, asked him, a, are there any lawyers here today? Thank God for that. You have to pray for your deliverance. I have a good joke to about lawyers, but I'll tell you just now. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And here we get to the important part. On these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets and everything in the Old Testament. All your faith, all your faith confessions, all you're believing for, everything is hung on those two commandments. Now, if you can love God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul, you can love your neighbor that steals your tomatoes. You can love your mother-in-law who irritates you and, and tells you how to cook food. You can love your son-in-law who steals your tools and doesn't return them. You can love your children who take your money and don't, don't ask permission. You can even love KU. And Shelby Electric, who, you can't make up their mind on a price increase and price decrease. You can love everybody. But you can't love anybody if you don't love God. You see, to love God is to look at everybody as a creation of God. Somebody God created. Somebody God must have loved because God created that person. And if God created that person, you've got to love them too. You don't have to like them. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I don't have to like them. He doesn't say like them. He says love them. There is a fundamental difference. I do not like everybody. 
In fact, there's a whole lot of you I don't like. <laughs> now I'm just teasing. I like you all. Ones I don't like left a long time ago. But you do have to love everybody. <laughs> you do have to love everybody. Hey, let's get real. Who likes everybody in this building? Come on, someone be real with me. Yeah, thank you, Mike. We need to be real. I don't like everybody in my family. Do you? No. No. I definitely don't like everybody in my family, but I have to love them. Do you know, if Christians started being a little bit more real and less stupid, we'd have a whole lot less problems. We don't like everybody. Let's be honest. Some preachers I don't like, but I have to love them. Some Christians I do not like. And come hell or high water, I will never like them. And in heaven, they'll be in one corner of heaven and I'll be in the other corner. But I will love them because I have to love them because I see God inside of them. And I love their spirit and I love what God's doing for them. But I don't necessarily have to like them. And that's a fundamental difference we need to understand. If everybody liked me, this church would be full of people. But it's not about that. It's about loving God. Amen. We don't all like everybody. And if we do, praise God, you, you, you'll meet somebody you don't like. But we have to love them. And there's a difference. Right. Love and like are not mutually exclusive or inclusive either. They're not mutually inclusive and they're not exclusive. It doesn't mean because I love somebody that I'm going to like them. Some men I love dearly, but man, oh man. Two minutes with them, they irritate me. Three minutes, I want to strangle. On the fourth minute, I want to, I'm looking for a two by four. <laughs> but I'll love him, and I'll give him anything he needs, whenever he needs it, and I'll pray with him, and I'll cry with him, and I'll minister with him, but when he opens his mouth, it's time for me to walk. Amen. Hey, I'm real. It's true. I can't stand up here and tell you it's not true, because then I'll be lying. But God didn't tell me to like them. He told me to love them. We have people, we have a food pantry in the church, and we feed people all the time. That's showing the love of God to people who are less fortunate. Because every one of us, at some stage in our life, has been down and out. Where you are rock bottom, and you just can't go any deeper. And praise God, there's been a church or there's been a family member or somebody who's had a bit more to give. And whether they liked me or not, they were there to help me. See, that's when love comes in. That's when love comes in. I have people coming in here who hate me, who want to talk to me at Walmart or anywhere else, but if they need something, they come knock on the door because they know that my love for them will overcome my dislike. And I'm then able to give with a heart of Please take as much as you need and come back if you need some more. Amen. You see, that's the difference between like and love. Like, I might like you, but when you need something, I might not want to give it to you. But if I love you, I'll always give. If I love you, I'll give you the shirt off my back. Just not this shirt, it was my favorite one. Amen. No, I'm just teasing. That's the difference between like and love. Love is stronger than like. Love means I'll give even if it hurts me. Like means I'm only going to give when it suits me. I'm only going to be there when it suits me. Love says I'll be there all the time. There's a Hebrew word we need to understand called hased. 
Hased is best explained as a father looking at his child. The father loves the child more than the child loves the father. The father will do anything and everything for his child. The child won't necessarily love and do anything and everything for the father. There are times when you weigh up. Go fishing with dad, play golf with dad, NFL football. Dad, football. Oh, glory to God, football's going to win. I've been there. Hunting, spend time watching TV or playing golf. I don't like playing golf. My dad wants to go play golf. I want to go play golf. I'd rather go hunting. Amen. Torn between the two. Now, if the roles were reversed and dad had the opportunity of coming with me to go hunting or to play football, he'd come hunting with me. That's just the way we are. Parents love their children more than the children love their dads or their mothers. And you only realize that when you have your own children. If you don't realize it when you, until you have your own children. They're like, when they're little babies, they can turn off their affection for you just as quickly as anything. Joshua has this favorite thing. I don't like you, Dad. <laughs> Thank you. Then he says, I don't love you, Dad. Well, glory to God. Go sit by yourself then. Oh, I love you, Dad. <laughs> yeah, you horrible little munchkin. <clears throat> now, God is like a father. And the word said is, is his co covenant with us, his commitment to us, to love us and to be there whether we return that love or not. We're there all the time. Whether Sue's feeling good or feeling bad. Whether Sue's mad at him or in love with him. Whether Sue wants to spend time with him or she's phoning once again to please do the laundry, please pay the bill, please fix the washing machine, please bring the cows home. Whether she's phoning just to spend time and to talk or she's phoning because she now wants to be with God's presence. Steve was sharing with me that he's got children and he's got Joshua in college. And whenever Joshua phones, it's money or laundry. Dad, I need some more money or can I bring some laundry home for mom to do? We're exactly the same with God. Hey, Lord, I've got a bill to pay. Lord, I've got a broken toe. You know, Lord, these cows, man, these cows. I don't know why you made these cows so stubborn, Lord. Lord, it's raining too much. My crop's not going to come in. Lord, there's not enough rain. What are you doing up there? I need some rain to bring my harvest in, Lord. Lord, I need some rock. Stop that rain so I can pick some rock out of the creek. Lord, let it rain. I need some more rock. I can imagine God saying, Mike, make up your mind. Do you want the rain or don't you want the rain? Do you want rock or not? Donnie, stop telling me it rains too much and stops raining. Make up your mind. What do you want? I'm picking on some people. I'm just joking with you. But that's exactly what we do. We call Lord all the time, every time we want, and seldom when we want to just talk. And that's not loving Him. That's using Him like a spare wheel or a bank account, doing an ATM cash withdrawal. I'm going to open some windows, put a window up there and a window up there, have drive by church. That's how we treat God. Drive by God. Hey God, I need some money quickly. Thanks. Love you. Bye. Hey God, I quickly need a new washing machine. Lord, quickly send some rain. Lord, please stop raining. Lord, I need a new car. Lord, <coughs> just help me get through this hangover, please. <laughs> help me get out of this hangover and I'll serve you again on Monday. Glory to God. I'll never drink again, Lord. That's the last time I'm drinking. Until the next person comes along. One more beer. Okay. Two more beers. Three more beers. The next thing. Oh, glory to God. I'm in it again. Father, forgive me. I'll never drink again. Please forgive me.
until the next beer comes along. But God doesn't hold it against us because He loves us. And He's continually there to pick you up and say, Oh, David, don't worry. I'll heal that head for you. That hangover will pass. When you get into a stupid marriage, I'll be there to help you sort it out once again. <laughs> when you don't listen to me and you get married, I'll, I'll help you mess, sort that mess out once again. When you buy a car that you can't afford and they want to foreclose on your house because you bought a stupid car, I'll be there and increase your income. And I won't expect you to tithe any more than what you're supposed to. That's what God does to us all the time. He's forever picking us up, dusting off our blessed assurance, helping us through the rough spots, and off we go on our merry way until we hit another hiccup in the road. And, oh, glory to God, I stubbed my toe. Lord, where are you when I stubbed my toe? Why didn't you move the rock out the path? Yeah, amen. Someone say yeah, amen. Alrighty, let's go to the book of John, chapter 14, verse 14. Still got five minutes to preach. Then I'll start the sermon. I'm afraid Maria's starting to understand me because she's smiling. That's quite scary if Maria understands me. Gee, man, there's plenty of teeth back there. Glory to God. Kenny, did you pay for all those teeth? Holy whack. John chapter 14, verse 14. <laughs> now, Lou's not going to smile. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, if I just stop right there and just preach for another two hours, that's a powerful scripture. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Now, how many of us have been to church and the preachers prayed and nothing's happened? Come on, don't be, don't be religious. Stick your hands up. Every one of you have been to one church where the preachers prayed and nothing happened. So why is that? Well, let's read verse 15 and see. If you love me. Ah! Ah, there's the problem. There is the problem. Rod Parsley said something yesterday which is very good. He said that too many preachers are too interested in their new suits, their new vipers, their new lifestyle. And they're too little bit of interest in God. And it shows in their ministry because nothing happens. There's no power in their ministry. There's absolutely nothing. It's dead. Sometimes, this is a terrible thing to say, but sometimes the preacher can pray for you and nothing changes. Ever. And you think, well, what's up with this? Where's my faith? And sometimes it's not your fault. Sometimes the preacher just doesn't love God enough. You see, if you're a preacher, man, you make a commitment to dedicate your life to God. Not part of your life, not your weekend and your Wednesday night, but Monday to Sunday, seven days a week, 365 and a quarter days of the year. I used to love scuba diving with sharks. Man, there's nothing more fun than to dive with a great white shark. This thing's like eight foot. He's got more teeth than Maria. He swims at about 60 miles, not uh, 40 miles, 40 to 50 miles an hour underwater. His brain's only that big, and all he knows how to do is kill. And you try and punch a one-ton animal swimming at 40 miles an hour with your fist, and you wonder what's going to stop. 
Now people say, punch him on the nose. Oh, hallelujah, yeah. Put your hand out there and you try and stop a one-ton animal traveling at 40 miles an hour underwater. He's going to push this arm right through the shoulder. So you've got nothing that will protect you against this big fish. That big chain mail they put inside you, he'll chew right through it. They've been known to eat 13, 14-foot boats. He's a big fish. Now you go play with this big fish, you're in his playground. And he just swims around you, that big eye, and looks at you, and it's wonderful. It's the most amazing experience you can imagine. If you enjoy adrenaline, man, you're going to love That's better than any ride at King's Island you can imagine. <laughs> Ain't nothing can compare to the great white circling you. You think, glory to God, that's a big fish. That's almost as big as the big putty tat. <laughs> Amen. Now, I had to give all that up. You guys don't have the big fish of Florida coast like we did in Africa. You don't have the big putty tats. That was a big part of my life. The biggest thing you got here as a bear, and they won't let me hunt bear with a knife. That's the biggest thing you got here as a bear. But the Lord said to me, I want you to go to Carrollton. I'm like, Lord, you know I like sharks. Are there lawyers in Carrollton? <laughs> what is in Carrollton that looks like a shark, Lord? <laughs> but the point I'm trying to illustrate, there's power in your life dependent upon how much you give up for God. Come on. The power in your life is dependent upon the sacrifice you make for God. You can't eat your cake and keep it. You can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and your own personal pleasures. I need to go somewhere because I'm getting behind you. Keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Amen. And let's go to the book of Acts chapter 2 verse, verse 43 quickly. And let's look at some of... of, some of let's, let's meet up a man called Peter. And let's look at what Peter had to say or what happened in Peter's life. Peter was a fisherman. Peter was a fisherman. And Peter gave up everything to serve God. He gave up everything for his love for Jesus. And there was a time when Peter denied Jesus. Three times he denied Him. But after Pentecost, that was all changed. And something else took place in Peter's heart. You see, the Spirit of the living God fell upon Peter and burnt out all that personal flesh that was in the way. And suddenly Peter didn't want to go back fishing anymore. Suddenly Peter wanted to serve God. And now we come across a whole new Peter. And let's look at the new Peter in Acts chapter 2. And it says, verse 43, Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And let's go to Acts chapter 5. And let's just look at how extensive was the signs and wonders in Peter's life. It started Acts chapter 5, verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. In other words, the disciples laid their hands on people. But I thought only Jesus did that. No, oh, Paul did it as well. Later on in the New Testament, Paul said to Timothy, Receive and activate and stir up the gift that was laid upon you through hands. 
It's not just some charismatic fad that, that people lay on hands on people. It's something that Christ told his disciples to do. It's something that Paul did. It's something that we are supposed to be doing, lay hands. James chapter 5, verse 16 and 17 says that, Let the any sick among you call the elders, let the elders anoint them with oil, pray the prayer of faith, and they will be healed. Now, if I'm not going to lay hands on the netta, how am I going to anoint oil on her? Oh, I know how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it like this. Yeah, netta, catch some oil. Catch some oil, Neta. Catch some oil. Catch some oil there, people. Catch some oil. That doesn't look very nice, does it? I've got to touch her, glory to God, and say, be healed in the name of Jesus. That's what Paul said. That's what James, the brother of John, oh, Jesus said. Can you imagine if I walk around the oil and sort of spraying blow everybody? Man, some of you ladies will be so mad at me because you'll have oil stains in you. Some of you get mad at me because I put oil on your forehead anyway. What's he doing? My hairstyle. I spent two hours creating this hairstyle. <laughs> this one little lady said to me, Do you know that pastor? I spent three hours this morning with this hairstyle and one minute with you and it's totally gone. <laughs> well, glory to God, your hairstyle, you're not going to stand in the way of getting an anointing. Now, Thank you, Acts chapter 5, verse 12, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. In other words, they were arrogant. They were arrogant. What's the difference between arrogant and bold? Let me tell you, if you're sitting in an aeroplane, they've got the first class seats up front, that cost you 15000 and they've got the cabin seats for the chickens, that cost you $1,000. Now, if the man sitting up front, in the $15,000 seat starts walking around there, then he's bold. When he gets to the cabin class, He's arrogant. <coughs> when he comes back to first class, he's bold. You see, arrogance or bold is the same thing depending on where you are from. In Africa, I'm timid. I'm shy. I'm introvert. In America, I'm arrogant, bold, and in your face. In Africa, I'm small. I'm a small man in Africa. Afternoon, she's seen some Africans. Man, they up here. The ladies are even bigger than me in Africa. That's why they send me to Carlton, because you're all short. <laughs> Bold arrogance, it depends upon your viewpoint. You think I'm arrogant, man, you must meet some pastors in Africa. Ooh, glory to God. They even scare me. I'm a shy little, I'm bashful. Someone say amen. Thank you. Verse 14. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So they brought the sick out into the streets and they laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Only his shadow was required to heal the people. Do you know it got to the stage that Peter couldn't lay hands on everybody? Well, that doesn't happen anymore. In Nigeria, there's a church of 15,000. The preacher can't lay hands on 15,000 people. So people walk in the sanctuary, get slain, get healed, start speaking in tongues by walking into the shadow. Catherine Kuhlman walked through the Hyatt Hotel in, 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 in uh, Chicago. She walked through the kitchen. No one knew who she was. People got healed. People got, everybody just fell out under the influence of God. She just walked through. 
Now, what am I trying to say? Peter loved God so much that he gave up everything. And merely his shadow caused people to get healed. You see, there's power in a love for God. When you love God, there's power. Too many churches today, too many preachers today can talk about the power. But they can't demonstrate it. Why not? Because we have theological in one sentence. And nothing logical about God. If Jesus Christ arrived today on his Harley Davidson with his head down past his shoulders and his beard out here and tattoos and earrings, everybody would run a mile. Well, that's just absolutely hypocritical. How could Jesus possibly have long hair and a beard? Well, guess what he did? Mm-hmm. And he rode a donkey. Not a horse. Not a fancy gold chariot. Not a Lincoln Town car. A Harley Davidson. <laughs> I want to upset most churches and most people. You see, we don't, we don't think of Jesus as a man who would play with and talk to the prostitutes and, and minister to the fishermen and the tax collectors. We like to think of him as a Lincoln Town Car man sitting with a three-piece suit and a jacket and tie in church. Head held high. Well, that ain't the Jesus I know. The Jesus I read about in the Bible spoke to the prostitutes, the fishermen, and if he had drug dealers, that's where he would have been. I would go so fast to say, if Jesus arrived on a Sunday morning, he wouldn't come to church, he'd go to the brothels. That's what the real people are. That's what they think of the church 